This is Sonically Speaking, and I'm Justin Savage. On this show, we talk to people who have taken a different path in life and find out how they got there. On this episode, we speak with musician, producer, author, the Ayatollah of rock and roll, Mr. Frank Sessage. We go a million miles and back and talk about his musical career. Why don't you just uh, introduce yourself and say who you are and, and okay. where we are and uh, why you are okay. here, and then we'll, uh, we'll go from there, my man. Uh, my name's Frank Sessage. I'm uh, a musician, an author, a songwriter, and I've had a career since, in music since 1966 when I was 15 years old. And I wrote a book, Circumstantial Evidence, played in a lot of bands, Blue Ash, Deadbeat Poets, Dead Boys, Club Wow, Mother Goose, and the current band is Deadbeat Poets. And then I go on book tours and tour with both bands and record with both bands. And I'm in Chattanooga, Tennessee on April 29th, 2019 with my good friend Justin. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here, and I am honored that you are here. So, Frank Sessage, my friend, please, let's uh, start in the beginning. Where are you from? I'm from uh, Sharon, Pennsylvania. It's, and where is that? That's the uh, last exit on Interstate 80 before you hit Ohio, right on the Ohio border, about 10 miles from Youngstown, Ohio. And what was it like? Uh, what year were you born? I was born 1951, Flag Day, June 14th, so same day as Donald Trump. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Yeah. Uh, I'm cursed. <laughs> So what was it? Uh, paint a, a picture of the town and uh, uh, Sharon. Uh, at that time, was about twenty six thousand people. It was a steel working town. A lot, lot of steel mills and factories, uh, all based around the steel industry. Industry and almost everyone worked either uh, for the steel mills or managed the steel mills in management or worked in the auxiliary things that the, the off businesses from the steel thing like trucking or, or or manufacturing things like that. What did your parents do? Um, my father was a steel worker. He was a slitter operator in Sharon Steel and my mother um, worked in a bakery and decorated cakes and did wedding cakes and that. And then she, she found out that how much they made for it, started her own business and made a fortune. She was a real artist and would really do it. That's great. So she started her own business doing that. And what did you say your father did there? Exactly? My father was a slitter operator. And what is that? And they would... Uh, take the big rolls of steel and cut them and laugh. it was a very precision job so and very hard jobs but he was real good at it you have brothers and sisters i have two sisters an older sister cindy's four years older than and me and the younger sister marianne two years younger nice yeah so when did uh was there music going on in the house oh uh, yeah they my dad my mom and dad are of croatian descent my grandparents were all croatian on both sides of the family and they always had that kind of music going we always would uh had that going on around the house my mom liked the uh um traditional singers like frank sinatra andy williams guys like that bobby vinton and perry como who were both from our neck of the woods western pennsylvania and um, my sister was into the real folk stuff in the early 60s, so I got into a lot of that, Dylan, Ian, Ian and Sylvia, uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and that, she always had that around before the Beatles came, so I, that's what I listened to. And then when the Beatles came, I was, I was done. Hooked. Yeah. Yeah. And so do you remember that? Oh, I remember it like it was yesterday. Tell, tell, <laughs> me, tell me your, your Beatle, your, your Beatle, Ed Sullivan issue. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was, it was funny as... Um, we had the television, and everybody set to watch the Ed Sullivan show. 
and my father would jump up and well, let's see what's on teasing us you know the kids let's see what's on over at abc get away from that tv you know it's ready to come on oh let's maybe something good over on nbc now because it was cbs there were only three channels <laughs> so every time uh we watch it and we're watching we're enthralled by the beatles he'd go up try to we get out of there <laughs> so uh uh that was the, the experience and uh and uh you know, I just thought, wow, this is great. This is just so cool. And I, from that moment on, I wanted to be in a band. Uh, funny, I wrote a book, and the beginning chapter of my my book is um, uh, called Ed Sullivan, That Bastard Ruined Everything. <laughs> and it's funny because years later, in 1970 or so, I was sitting watching the Ed Sullivan show with my father, and he, he just shakes his head, and he's looking at Ed Sullivan. He goes, Ed Sullivan, he nods to the TV. He goes, that bastard ruined everything. <laughs> and it probably did ruin his world and the way things were. From He was a World War II veteran and, and you know, growing up in the 30s and everything during the Depression into the 50s, it was a whole different mind. Everything changed that night. <laughs> Did you get? Did you want a guitar as soon as you? Oh, said? I wanted a guitar right away, but it, it, the guitars were expensive and everything. My uncle Jack would give me an old Stella guitar, so I, I had that right away. And but they're hardly playable, you know. I mean, they're not real good guitars. And then uh, my mother finally, in early 1965, bought me a Harmony Monterey, which is a big f hole thing and a great guitar, you know. So I love that, and that's how I learned to play on that. Did you take lessons or how? No, no, no. no. Um, uh, I had a, a friend named Mark Beaver Warner. Beaver was his nickname, like the Leave It to Beaver guy. And he already had an electric guitar. He had a K, which was okay, you know. And he would teach, start teach me chords and little riffs and stuff. So we would practice together, and we started our first band together in 1965 called the Electrons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and what kind of stuff were you guys doing? Oh, uh, we were we would just copy stuff. Uh, what, I think one of the songs we did was Wayne Fontana and the Mindbenders was a big hit. Uh, the Game of Love. The purpose of a man is to love a woman. That one, yeah, yeah. So we would do stuff like and Kinks. We did the Kinks. We were big on the Kinks. Just the two of you, or you just, had it? Just the two of us. Then we started adding people, and uh, we started writing songs right away, which was fun. You know, I I wrote my first one was called Let Me Go in 1965. I was trying to copy like the Kinks, Set Me Free, even kind of the same premise let me yeah and it, it was terrible but uh beaver was pretty good he he wrote a couple really good ones and we wrote one called um he had one called run and dance in the meadows which is a great little song and we wrote one called he was poor which is kind of a countryish one and we wrote one called happy maria which was hilarious i have to see if i can remember the lyrics to that later i'll bring that back again nice and so you guys were playing out uh, just for the neighborhood kids play on the porch and stuff, set up a tent in the backyard. And well, did they think that you were ice cold cool because yeah, you guys yeah, were yeah, band? Yeah, I, re I really. I, I actually saw a review on Barnes and Noble, and one girl bought the book. She goes, "I lived next door to Beaver Warner. Frank doesn't remember. I was too young, but I used to see them on the porch when they do that. So that was pretty funny. I thought oh, this is in the Barnes and Noble review. Pretty funny. I don't remember her, but." Yeah, she's she's remembered seeing us. She was younger, little, probably seven or eight then. <laughs> so then, what's the next uh, mm. progression of the band? Or uh, we we started playing out. We played our first um, for gig at a party at, at Beaver's girlfriend's house, Barbie Hides, and and had all the kids from junior high there. We were in ninth grade, and we added Jack Riley on a tambourine. So the three of us could sing pretty good. And it went over really good. There were about 100 kids at the party. So, And then her father paid us like 40 bucks, which was a fortune in 1966. So that was, was kind of cool. So it was our first professional gig. Then we set out to get other members and um, got uh, Jim Kenzer, 
the beginning of the school year, he's uh, ended up being the singer with Blue Ash, fantastic world-class singer. And we met him on the first day of school in 1966. He had transferred from Catholic school, so I'd never never knew him before. And came in, so got him in the band. Nice. And he was fantastic. And then the whole sounds kind of changed. Yeah, yeah, we got a bass player and we got a drummer, so we we, we were we were a band then. What were your parents thinking about you mm-hmm. getting involved with this uh, music action? Well, it was kind of funny because uh, in the in the 1950s, my, my next door neighbor to my parents, he was a drummer and he played all the time. And my dad would work different shifts, you know, and and midnight and everything. They would change the shifts at the mill. So when we started the band. He goes, Frankie. He goes, you guys got to practice at my our house all the time. He goes, because he was on a steady day turn shift. He goes, I'm going to get Grace next door for all this years in the 50s. Uh, so we, he always let us practice <laughs> and never cared. That's great. He goes, I'm going to get her for all the times. He kept me up banging those drums. <laughs> he goes, you practice here. So we always practice at my house. Nice. Yeah. So when uh, do you guys start gigging out now as as a band? Or? Yeah, well, then we started. So we, we started getting... We, the, the stuff you do when you're, you know, 15 years old in the band, Battle of the Bands at the United Methodist Church, you know. We would do stuff like that. And parties, kids' parties, we got paid for. Then we started getting some good gigs. A girls' bill club, boys' club. It's like a boys' club that this millionaire guy left a park. And we have the only free golf course in, in the world, too, in China. Huh. And so there are a lot of good golfers there. And he left this with all, he was a steel magnet, Frank Buell, in the late 1800s, early. And he left all his money to do this stuff for kids. So he built this beautiful park that had this casino on it where bands would play. They do plays. The only free golf course in the world. All you do is sign your name, you go play golf. It's kind of cool. And, uh, and and then they had these clubs, so they had money to pay bands. So we played these clubs all the time. And that was good. But there were a lot of teen dances, so we started getting into that and started get you know, get got a PA and got good amps, got better guitars. Did you guys have a look? Yeah, we were pretty much, uh, there's a couple pictures I have to show you. There's one in the book, actually, from 67 there. But we wore the mod clothes, you know, the uh, doughboy coats we'd have, and the, the hats like this, the tab collar shirts, the beetle boots, uh, Levi's, you know, peg legs, you know, Snow White Levi's, Black Levi's, any of the Levi's we could get, the, the birds look. Yeah. You look at the birds' first uh, album, we look like that. Were you getting harassed in town for the Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. You, I mean, you couldn't go a half a block, somebody would yell, get a haircut, or are you a boy or a girl, bother this, all this, everywhere you went, you know. Right. So what is uh, the next uh, move for the band? Uh, Do you guys cut a single or anything? No, no, no we no. never recorded or anything. We just kept pl- playing in it. But we got in some kind of trouble with the law, so we had ended up at the juvenile court. Oh, okay. You kind of well, what, what, well yeah. what happened? Well, we this there was a woods out near where we lived. There was an old house. It was abandoned, the house, but there was all kind of stuff in it. And uh, we, we broke into it, and uh, we would have parties there because we would steal cases of beer from the beer distributor at, 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 at the down the street you drive through but they couldn't see the very end of it and sometimes it was funny we'd send some of our friends or some of our shady looking friends and they'd be up they'd have potato chips and stuff they'd be looking around real shady and 
and the guys were all big Italian guys be on them like this, you know, and we'd go back and rifle a few cases out of the back. Iron City beer they always had in the back. Well, anyway, we had this big party place up there, and, and we got busted for being there. And uh, we had to go to juvenile court, and we didn't get sent away to a reform school, but we had to go there and repair it. We were on probation for a year, so we couldn't do a lot of stuff. So the band kind of fell apart a little bit. And then another band asked me to be in, be in their band. I, I just got a really good Epiphone Casino guitar, and uh, that band was Great Hibiscus. And then I played with them. We started playing really good gigs and stuff. And uh, then I... Uh, with some of the other guys started the Mother Goose band and we we were like 16 and we got a residency at Geneva on the lake it's like a Britain's Butlins holiday camp you know people go and rent cottages for a week but we were the only teenage uh, place with it have alcohol and a lot of bands played there were about 10 places to play in the strip but we were the teenage place so we you know we're 16 year old guys with turnover teenage girls every week that's great fact, so um, made a lot of money there and we got a gig on, on memorial day and the guy liked us he hired us for the whole summer got us a cottage so we had our own cottage and everything and it was a lot of fun and so what kind of sound was mother goose oh mother goose was a cover band we did soul stuff wilson pickett uh the rascals uh, we did uh stones uh cream all the stuff that was going on in vanilla fudge uh, a psychedelic soul band yeah, were you even though you're doing I played bass were you even though you guys were doing covers were you still on your own writing I was still writing on my own but we didn't do any originals that it was a cover band world then right yeah what kind of stuff were you still writing? is <laughs> yeah no shit man. uh what what kind of stuff were you writing or were you just kind of still fi figuring out no I wrote one of some of my best really good early stuff I wrote a song called silver horses in uh in early 1968, and it, it appeared on that Not Lame thing. A lot of people think it's one of the best songs Blue Ash ever did. Blue Ash then recorded it as a demo in 72, but it never got released, and it's got a string quartet on it and everything. Oh, yeah? It's kind of a real Baroque thing, and a lot of people really like that. So nice. I wrote that when I was, like, 16. And a couple things that we're doing on the Blue Ash uh, new album that's co coming out at the end of the year, the first one in 40 years that there's one or two songs from that era too that's great yeah, it's kind of cool so mother goose uh, uh tell me a little bit more about mother goose and then what happens after so mother, mother goose mother goose then, then uh, uh our our guitar player we played all summer and on labor day weekend guitar player and organ player got in a fight right on the strip we had to pull them apart and that was the end of that band then so i i stayed with him we didn't have the organ player john hanny we got another guy played bass and i went back to guitar again rhythm guitar was that weird for you to back and forth no, i was fine I, I always played both anyway i still do that i'm back to guitar again they'd be poets i was the bass player so uh then then we you know played around cleveland youngstown but i, I was i was getting really I didn't really like playing covers. I wanted. I was writing songs and I was into it and I wanted to do original stuff. So I got back together with Jim Kenzer again from uh, the City Jail, our first band, and I was, we'll start a, a, um, a, uh, an original band. And then uh, on Memorial Day weekend, I played, was playing in Cleveland. I got a collapsed lung on stage. And the guys from the other that had started the fight with uh, Mother Goose, he was kind of a real hothead all the time. He wouldn't take me to the hospital. So I had to stay in the van all night and I had a collapsed lung. And I got really, really, really in bad shape. Every time I'd breathe, it was like someone's shoving a 
a knife in me. And uh, I had spent 10 days in the hospital. And when I was in there, Jim and I, I, I told him I quit the band. We're going to do an original band. Then some other guys had a great cover band. They said, why don't you fill in with us for the summer? We got all kind of gigs. We need a bass player. And it was good money. I said, okay, but I'll stay till September. And then you, I'm going to practice with Blue Ash and we're going to start the band. So we started the band and played our first gig October 3rd. Um, 1969 at the uh, fr a freak out in Youngstown. We're together 10 years and played over, uh, I think, about 1,800 gigs. And so how old were you when Blue Ash started that? Uh, I was uh, 17, going on 18. 17, going on 18. And so in your mind, this is the future for you. Yeah, there's yeah, no college. Yeah. There's no, 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 no. You, were, you, was, you knew what you I, wanted I, to I do. I was done with school, really, in ninth grade. I, I, I would be there, but... I mean, I was didn't pay any attention. Right. It, it meant nothing to me. It had nothing to do with the animals or the Rolling Stones. The real education so it meant, meant absolutely nothing to me. What did your parents think about that? I mean, did they knew that was happening with you? Or? Yeah, they saw it was happening, but the, the, they they really supported it. And one thing my dad did later on when we started playing and doing it, he goes, "You know what?" He goes. He goes, I'm actually very glad you never went in, because everybody would go into the mills because it was good money, and but it was a, a back-breaking job and, and a donkey job, you know. The, the guys hated it. Everybody said, oh, we'd want the factories back. No, they don't want them back. No, those guys never liked working in there. They did it because it was good money, but it was damn hard work. So it's coal mining. Think People think it's great to go in the coal mine. Oh, we're going to bring the coal back. Yeah, right. Who wants to work there? You really talk, really talk to the people, you know, right. they don't want those jobs as very crap jobs, but they paid good, you know, so uh, anyways, he said, I'm, I'm really proud of you. He goes that you became a musician. He goes, because I think if you would have gone in the mill, he goes, I would have shot you and saved you 40 years of misery. <laughs> <laughs> he was a character like that. I go, thanks. <laughs> But he, he was a character, always funny like that. So, uh, yeah, he was kind of proud of it, yeah. Nice. Yeah. So what happens then with Blue Ash now? Now we're in 69? 69, Blue Ash started getting very, very popular. And uh, what are you doing? You're, you're traveling? We're, we're it, playing one-nighters all over Pennsylvania, New York, Virginia, West Virginia, Ohio, everywhere. Were, were you, you booking your own stuff? No, we, we got a booking agent, Jeff Jones. He was the big booking agent and manager in... Um, in Youngstown, and he had a band called Glass Harp that became very famous with Phil Kagi. Phil's a very big in, in uh, religious music and everything. I don't know if you heard of him. Uh -uh. Real great guitar player, and he's uh, just really huge in that that area of the Christian music. But th he wasn't then. He was a rock and roller then. But um, uh, they had just parted ways, and we ended up. I said, "We'll just go." I knew his sister. We used to hang out. We'll, we'll go audition for Jeff and tell him we need a manager. So we ended up there and we just sang a cappella. the three of us, we sang um, It's For You, which we had worked up with Three Dog and I, I, and we could nail it without even, even instrument. So we did that for him in his living room and we sang Nowhere Man by the Beatles, the three part, eyes are real. And he goes, okay, he goes, uh, you know, I'll take you out, I'll get you this job at the freak out, he had his office. That was the big psychedelic place. So we had a lot of friends, we'd have big parties where we'd rehearse out in the country. So we brought 300 people with us that night. And and, and with the regular crowd, there's like 600 people, wall-to-wall -wall people. So, uh, uh, 
they had two owners. One was Jack Gerchuk and Jim Pantelis. And Jimmy was one of the bookists. And Jack came in. He goes, I don't like these guys at all. He goes, the hell? He goes, they play here every night. They brought 600 people tonight. <laughs> he goes, they can own the place. But then we, he started liking us, too. Then we, we were pretty good. But we were doing half originals, too, at the and half covers. You know? So we were kind of half original, just which no bands were doing then, you know? So at the time, maybe the James Gang, you know, who were a regular band there too. And then we got very, very popular. And, and after about nine months, um, Jeff says, why don't you guys do um, a Tommy, uh, the rock opera? I said, that'd be cool, you know? So we worked it out. It took us a month to work it out. And we segued all the songs. They rented the, Jeff rented the Steelworkers Hall and we had Glass Harp. And the opening band was the Steve Bader Band. Mm. This is the 19th so He got a little pickup band. And so for people who don't know who, who that is. That's Steve Bader's from the, 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 the Dead Boys and whom I ended up later playing with. So I have a nice poster at home. So this place is packed with kids and people went nuts. So we did it perfectly. Tommy And we segued every song. We never stopped. That's great. Put on heavy gauge strings on our guitars. So we got to ten, and we got standing ovations, encores, blah blah blah, and we became very, very uh, uh, famous around the Youngstown, Northeast Ohio, for that. The DJs, famous one, Boots Bell, I think uh, PBS or somebody's doing a, a, a documentary on him. They got a hold of me and went in me. He was a famous uh, DJ from Youngstown. He introduced the Beatles when they came to, to uh, Pittsburgh. Great guy, and. Uh, uh, they would go on the radio, Blue Ash, and we had a wild stage show jumping around, smashing stuff up and everything, really a uh, lot of action on stage. You gotta see these guys to believe it, they just tear it up. Then we started doing Cold Turkey, John Lennon's song is the last thing, and as it's going in the end, every, we never knew where it was gonna end. So we would just go and feeding back and slamming stuff, and people would go brushing the stage and everything. We actually got, a, and then the DJs would keep going on and on about it you gotta come out and see these guys so we got very very popular and it got to the point we were playing in the second year uh 250 275 dates a year all one-nighters and we were turning down four or five jobs for every one we took and at this point do you have a single have you recorded anything we haven't yet? recorded Nothing. anything yet. you're we're just hitting the road so we're hitting the road and playing and doing our original songs then um, we got approached by peppermint productions in 1972, they wanted to make a let us come in and 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 record, and they would shop the things around. Where is that? That's in Youngstown, and it was a great great studio. It's still in existence, and they 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 actually won Grammy awards and everything for like Polka Records. Yeah, <laughs> but it's a great old studio. They got the old Neumann mics and everything, and the uh, the tw they're worth twenty five thirty thousand dollars a piece now. They got all the you know the tubes and the classic stuff. So we record there. And, and we did like, including Silver Horses, the song I was talk, telling you about that I wrote in 68. And um, we made demos and they sent the demos out you know, to just record companies like people would do. And we had four companies interested in us, right off, which is amazing. You know, MGM, uh, Polydor, Metro Media that Merv Griffin owned, and they had Bobby Sherman and Big Teen Idol play, people, and Mercury Records. And we end up, ended up getting signed to Mercury by Paul Nelson, who um, uh, signed the New York Dolls at the same time. And, nice. Uh, he was the head A&R guy there. A good year. Yeah. So what? Ha so you're signed. So yes. in in your guys' mind, what what kind of contract or deal do they give you? But in your mind, are you thinking, okay, now we're on our, we're on our way? Like things. things oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So it, it was real cool. So, yeah, a funny story. There was a guy from uh, Youngstown there named Gary Del Vecchio, and he was up in Paul Nelson's office in New York uh, with his manager or something, trying to you know get a deal there. And Paul had was the A and R guy, and there were just hundreds and hundreds of tapes and stacks everywhere. People would send them. They come in the morning mail every from all over the world, right? Mercury was a big label then, and uh, he saw Blue Ash on the top of a stack. Yeah. And he goes, these guys are from my hometown. They're pretty cool. You ought to give them a listen. So he puts it on. He's completely knocked out by it, you know. So he calls in Bud Scapa, who writes for, I think, Mix, Mix Magazine now. He's one of the editors there. And uh, Bud, you got to hear this. And, they're, and Bud's knocked out by it. But the funny part is they go out to eat that night, and they're really, really excited about Blue Ash. And they're um, at their favorite restaurant, Lestrade, I think it was on East 48th Street. And they're talking and talking about Blue Ash. There's three girls sitting next to him at the table. A lot of people go in my area, go to New York for a weekend and go see shows and stuff. And they're going on a little vacation in New York. And these guys hear them talking about Blue Ash. And they said they couldn't believe it, you know? So they said, excuse me, are you talking about a band called Blue Ash? Yeah, we're from Jamestown, New York. They play up there all the time. They said, well, we're from Mercury Records. We just got a tape from them today. we couldn't believe how good it was. We're thinking about signing them, you know. And they said, "Oh, you should. You got." They said, "You got to see them live, though. That's really you got to see them live." So he called our manager Jeff and uh, like to come down and see him live. Set it up at the Freak Out and played our set, you know. And we went back in the dressing room. And Paul doesn't show up. He's out there in five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes. Jeff says, "Well, maybe he didn't like you guys." You know. I said, "Well, I'm going to go out, go out and ask him." He's sitting at the bar. I said, well, so what did you think, Paul? He goes, ah. He goes, I think you're one of the best bands in America. He goes, I'm going to sign you up to Mercury Records. <laughs> he goes, I'm just I'm just sitting here. He goes, I'm kind of, a, he goes, dumbfounded by it. He goes, I'm trying to plan it all out in my mind right now, what I'm going to do with you. So I went back to the dressing room. I said, pack your bags, boys. We've just been called up by the major leagues. <laughs> <laughs> to New York and started, uh, you know, get, getting on Mercury Records. And, so. you, and part of your, I think, the deal, what you told me the other night was really oh, interesting. Oh, yeah, we had, uh, with Peppermint Productions, our deal with them was we'd have two free days of recording every month for um, five years. And they, true to their word, they brought us into studio like this. We would set up, we had new songs. Sometimes we'd do them live. Sometimes we'd put a couple tracks on them. But they had a 12-track machine, or 16 then. And what we would overdub, but we, uh, we would do this every month. And just, we always had a million songs. So later on, when, when uh, Not Lame wanted to put out a Blue Ash compilation thing, of all, they knew about all these unreleased things. I went over to Peppermint and Gary Ramey, who still owns it, was there, and he had, he had saved all the Blue Ash tapes in a big freaking box, 
you know, like a, a that a refrigerator came in or something. So I went through it, and there were 219 tapes, Jesus <laughs> songs. So we had all. I still haven't gone through all of them yet, but then I picked 44 of the best ones I thought, and they made that um, double CD, which was a four album set. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. that's a wild thing. Yeah, yeah. and the stuff sounded fantastic. Yeah, and I hadn't heard it, and yeah. That many years, and so you know, blue, you know, can you describe a little bit in your words? But you know, the, the sound of blue ash because to, to me, it, it very unique, and it's also a little ahead of its time as far as uh, the rocking out and the popness, which later, I yeah, guess, I yeah. mean, you're associated with it. But that's not all the sound, but I mean, it's definitely yeah. a part of it. You know, later on, they would call it what what critics and and writers would call power pop, but it was it was um, kind of a melodic rock, but played with you know, Marshalls or high watt amps, heavy amps. So I have a heavier sound, but it was real melodic. It, the bands they lumped in that genre were like uh, Raspberries, Bad Finger, Big Star, and we were always lumped in with all all of those like that, which was actually quite an honor. That, yeah, I, don't I mean, mean that's being a, lumped that's great. in, but, but and still are with that. But that was the kind of stuff that was going. On. Of course, we were bucking everything that was going on then, singer songwriters. Um, uh, you know the heavy metal and Black Sabbath kind of, that was real popular. So, but we always had our own own fan base and everything, and people and especially the rock writers love this, love that kind of stuff. So, so so what happens now? So you're signed. So you're you're doing your dates. So they talk about okay, we want a record. Yes. So we recorded at, at, at Peppermint and did our album. Our album came out, and magazines like Cream did a big article on us even two weeks before the record came out. So we went up there and met all those guys, but we were everywhere. Rolling Stone, we're, Blue Ash is going to be this big, great phenomenon, blah, blah, blah. But we couldn't get the promo people at Mercury didn't know what to do with us. The A&R people loved us, and the writers all loved us. We got the best press you've ever seen in your life. Every magazine was honest, honest, you know, get it. And we got a cult following going, but we could never break a, a, a hit records like the Raspberries. They at least had that. But then their album sells weren't as, as great and their albums weren't as great but the singles were nice and um so we we just kept plugging away I put a second single out and it, it didn't do it either and our contract with mercury was we had to sell twenty five thousand um copies to get a second album well we ended up selling that summer nineteen thousand five hundred so they they said well we'll give them one more single and we did uh, uh any time and all in this by the Beatles, and uh, she saw nice another original we have, which was even a, be a better song as an A side, but they didn't put it out there. But Dick Clark, God bless him, he, he put it on his radar record and really tried to push it and everything. And and uh, we still, even with his help, we couldn't get it. Yeah, so they dropped us. But then um, uh, a lot of labels were interested: Columbia, um, RCA, and. We, that Columbia actually flew us to New York. We auditioned in Studio uh, A. Everybody seemed to like us. But at the last minute, something would fall through. That would fall through. And Emperor Records, where the Romantics were on, it was uh, owned by a guy named Nat Weiss, who was uh, the Beatles' American lawyer. And when John and Paul came and did the, the Johnny Carson show, they stayed at his apartment. But he came to Youngstown and loved the band and uh, hung out all was going to sign us, personally told me I'm going to sign the band, yeah. And he had some financial problems with his label, and he, he couldn't do it, was all upset. That he, he said, I just can't do it. He goes, I wish I could be. I, you guys have to be done properly. You know, he, he goes, I just don't have, you know, the 
willing to do it. So anyway, um, we ended up with Playboy Records. And then, which is good because they were distributed by CBS. So all the people at Columbia that liked us were pushing the record. And uh, we actually had a really big regional hit called Look At You Now. All over Texas hit Oklahoma, the South and Southwest. Uh, hit big time in the station, number one in, in a dozen markets. And sold 54,000 copies. It was just ready to take off. And Playboy went out of business. <laughs> they dumped the label. So um, Epic wanted to pick us up. and uh, But they... Uh, the one guy that was producing us wanted a, a truckload of money from them to do it. And they said, no, we'll just take it and we'll keep running with the record. He goes, well, we'll get another label. He's telling us. And we were kind of mad about it. And then nothing happened and it all fizzled out. And that was pretty much the end One, of the band. Two, three, Give me the time frame from, from getting signed to Mercury 2, Playboy. Signed to Mercury, late 72, Mercury Records out in, in 73, last Mercury single out in 74. Got signed to Playboy in 76, put out the single, single gets to be a regional hit. Put, flew out to California and, and Miami. We did it in Criteria, and Village Recorder recorded the second album, Front Page News. Starts taking off, Playboy goes out of business. And that's what year? That's, 78. 78. So Blue Ash is pretty much done, and we're all depressed. And then my old friend Steve Baders comes to town for the holidays and wants to write songs with me and play pop music. Well, we're going to, I'm going to start, <laughs> we're going to get deep on that one. But so I, that's I, a pretty I, much a good summary of Blue Ash. Yeah, but, but it Blue was. Blue Ash became a huge cult. Band. Was it yeah. at the time though? Was it was it frustrating? Were you guys all frustrated? Oh, were, yeah. were you just kind of like, what the fuck is going on <clears throat> yeah, here, and yeah. why? Every yeah. time we would be close to getting the brass ring, it would be jerked away from us. So it was really, and it was a talented band. It was a really good band, and it, it, it was frustrating. And you were hitting it hard though. I mean, like, play, but you guys were just constantly on the road though yeah. too, as oh, well, yeah, right? Yeah. Playing, playing, playing. Yeah. I mean, there were days where we'd play forty-five days straight without a break, including Christmas and Christmas Eve. <laughs> and you had a manager. Yeah, was, was it the same manager? Same guy, Jeff the whole, Jones. The whole, the whole time, okay. The whole time, yep. So he, so he stuck with you. He was a believer. Yeah, no, yeah, That's yeah, cool. Yeah, 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 he was a good guy. He died a few years ago. He had heart problems and passed away in 2013. 
Okay. Well, it's uh, a good man. It sounds yeah. like. So let's uh, now let's get. Uh, I'm rubbing my hands here. Right. Well, now. I haven't talked about a lot of this stuff in ages. So that's, well, good because yeah. I, I want to know You're these. Have guys. a unique interview. Well, <laughs> I was trying. You know, I was sitting in the fucking van with you and all these yeah. things I wanted to ask yeah. you. So yeah. I'm kind of chomping at the bit yeah. not to talk to you in there, so I can ask you these things now. Yeah. You know. Sure. So uh, let's let's get to that phone call and uh, the music scene at the time. It is different, I guess, a little bit, or things are happening. Yeah, so- things are happening. In 77, all of a sudden, I think 1978 was the best year ever for the recording industry. They were selling records left and right for two reasons. First of all, was the disco stuff was going crazy. And then you had the reaction to that, which was all the punk stuff. Then you'd have offshoots of the punk stuff like the power pop, and all of a sudden power pop's becoming fashionable. And guys like uh, Blue Ash and, and uh, Badfinger, um, Emmett Rhodes, um, raspberries and and uh, big star Alex Chill are becoming lionized. You know these other new bands like the Knack and all these love these bands. The records from England and they recorded um, my song Abracadabra. Uh, have you seen her? And they had a, a top, Blue Ash song, right? Yeah, yeah, Blue Ash song, and they had a top forty hit in what I call the summer of power pop. Uh, 1979. So all this stuff was happening. My Sharona and all these the romantics, all these bands were hitting it and really hitting it hard. And then so, uh, you know, us guys like Alex Chilton and me or the Raspberries and God Run, we were kind of like the, the uncles of Power Pop, you know, <laughs> the nice, the funny uncles. Yeah, so well, it's great everybody, stuff. Everybody kind of liked us and yeah. we're doing covering songs and stuff. So the records brought back that kind of thing back into the four. And then Steve Bader's wanted to do Power Pop because the Dead Boys were Fizzland. And of course, he got a hold of me and then played. We did some demos in Cleveland. And so some, hold on. Okay. Back up. So for anybody who do, does is listening to this, and just give a, a, a brief uh, history of Steve Bader's and the Dead Boys okay. and, and your relation where, and where they came from. Steve Bader's was the lead singer in the Dead Boys and the Lords of the New Church. You might know him for that. That's the most famous band. But Steve and I were friends when we were teenagers. I was 15 when I met him. He was 17. And um, uh, we used to help his band out a lot. A guy sent me a flyer today that has uh, from 1973, and it has Mother Goose opening up this little festival for Blue Ash. Nice. And it's on the flyer. I'll show it That's to you great. later. Because I just found this in my old stuff. But we helped him out as much as we could. And Jeff Jones would always help him out, too, and get him gigs and everything and help him with equipment and stuff. So... Uh, then when the Dead Boys started hitting real big, he called Jeff and got Jeff as a road manager and because Blue Ash had been fizzle, fizzling out then. And then he wanted to do pop stuff, so he, he would always come and visit me, excuse me, on the holidays. And Cynthia Ross, his girlfriend at the time from the Big Girls, and Stiff came to my apartment in November of 78, uh, and we wrote the song the last year. And then we went up and recorded that. He goes, I'd like to do It's Cold Outside, the old choir song. And I said, yeah, that'd be cool. Let's do it. So Johnny Blitz, cheated, not Johnny Blitz, Jimmy Zero, uh, Stiv, and myself. And those are members of, of the Dead Boys. Yeah. Recorded um, It's Cold Outside in the last year. Stiv and Cynthia went out. She was signing the Bomp Records already with the B-Girls and played it for Greg Shaw, and he went nuts over Greg Shaw, the owner? The owner of Bump, yeah. And he went nuts over and, uh, and offered us a recording contract. So early 79, we were recording with him in California. This is the last year of my life. Can't seem to do much more than I've done. Got a new 
So in your mind now, like, okay, I've got this new, yeah. uh, I have a new thing that's yeah, happening yeah, here now. Yeah. So I was playing guitar and bass with Steve on the recordings. I did both that. And then our old friend, Eddie Best from Austintown, Ohio, came out to California. We recorded the single, It's It's Cold Outside. And it, uh, Greg um, put it out, and it had a great picture sleeve done by Donna Santesi and Teresa Karyakis, world-class photographer, was there at the sessions doing all the photography, too. And she was here last uh, night in Chattanooga with me. And um, uh, that, that recording just started taking off everywhere. It was a hit in New York City, London, everywhere. It was released in Germany and uh, uh, England. And uh, Stiff started going out and playing gigs and still doing Dead Boys things. So Jeff Magnum didn't want to do it, so they asked me. And the I, bass player. Yeah, the bass player. So I ended up uh, playing with them, and, and then for the next uh, two and a half years, 79 through uh, 1981, I, I toured with them constantly all over the North America, everywhere, back and forth, everywhere. And it's a different. It was a different style of, of tunage, as far mm-hmm. as from what the Dead Boys were doing yes. for what uh, you and Stiv were well, doing. We still did a lot of the Dead Boys song, but then we. But were the at, writing at, seemed yeah, like yeah. it was. The writing was different, but we'd add in the pop songs too. Right. And then uh, eventually, Cheetah had to leave because he fell and broke his wrist. So we got George Cabanis to fill in with him, and then uh, Blitz left, and we got David Quentin Steinberg who played on the thing. So we were evolving really into the Stiv Bader's band. And in 1980, in the summer of um, 1980, August and September, we recorded the Disconnected album in California. Okay, now we're going to really get there. Okay. So let's talk about the writing of those songs, and let's talk ab- about uh, what it was like rehearsing and and the recording of that, because the sound on there is incredible. And that's Tom, what's his name? Tom Wilson. Yeah. I, not, and there's two Tom Wilsons, yeah, yeah, right? This, this is not one, that. I'm not the Dylan guy or the guy that did Simon and Garfunkel. But still, on as far yeah. as I'm concerned, same par as yeah. a, a top-notch quality record in my mind. Yeah, well, Greg Shaw from Bomp Records hired Tom Wilson. We'd never heard of him before. And really good producer, engineer. And he actually became famous. After all, the Disconnected album was the first album he ever did. But he had done one single before that, which was, uh, I think, uh, Olivia Newton-John and um, John Travolta. You're the one that I want, one that I want. Woo-hoo. He had rec- been the engineer on that, I guess. And so that's a great got, knew him and got, got to get this studio. We got this great studio in Sun Valley, California, called Perspective. And um, Tom later became famous. He did Madonna. Offspring, New Edition. I mean, it got tons of people like that. He was a very famous producer. He passed away a few years ago, too. Anyway, so he, we all got along really great with him. And uh, we wrote all these songs in, out in California. But he had a really unique way of recording next to the studio. There was a basketball court. And it was just empty space in the building that they were trying to rent out or something. But this place had this bouncy crazy sound so we set up the drums out there and 
the bass so we get this really crazy you know uh, rhythm sync that album sounds like no other album i've ever yeah, heard. yeah i mean yeah. sort of from that first kick in yeah, yeah, on, on like, evil yeah, boy i mean it's yeah. like that's nuts yeah, yeah, man. yeah it's this big room that just had this song So he was smart enough to, to, you know, he goes, let's do this room, you know. And and we did all kinds of things. I mean, the crash on Too Much to Dream is me dropping a, a, a twin reverb amp from four feet up onto the ground and recording it. A rented one, of course. I wouldn't have done that to my own. But that's how we, we, we would record stuff like this. We had some cr funny, crazy times in that studio. But the funniest thing we did was um, at the end of the last song was I Want to Forget You Just the Way. You, you probably never heard this story, but we uh, um, had a roadie called Ken Smythe, and he brought, I said, I want this thing to sound like uh, uh, you know, an 1812 overture cannonade like Tchaikovsky, boom, you know, at the end of the big mammoth explosions. He goes, well, I got M80s and silver so I could go, we'll put them in the studio. So we lined up all the stuff all in the studio and had them set up, and we, and Stiv and I lit the fuses. Boom, the war starts, right? And Tom's recording his ship, and all of a sudden, we didn't realize it, that the whole studio is filling up with smoke. And Stiv and I were choking. We hit the ground, and those, we had to crawl for our lives. We couldn't even see the door. We're crawling and choking, and everything. We finally got out, almost killed, and they're all laughing their asses <laughs> on, on the floor with tears in their eyes. That was the end of the session. We had to clear the smoke out of the studio. The whole thing was covered. You know, we're so smart, we don't realize the smoke's going to stay, you know, and the studio's <laughs> confined. So, and then we had to do that fumigate the place before the owners ever found out about it. But it didn't, at least it didn't hit the gear or something. It was just out in the big room. So, pretty funny stuff. Did you, and you guys came in with the songs already written? And yeah, we were writing as we were going on the road and everything. A couple interesting, uh, one of the interesting songs was Bad Luck Charm. And we were on the road in New York. And David and played drums, David Steinberg, and George Cabinus was the guitar player. And Johnny Thunders came and got up and did a few numbers. I think we did Pills and some of the doll stuff. And yeah, he played with us. And he had a, a, a necklace on and it had a, a chain on it. It had like a deer's hoof that, that had been like just sliced off. I think you can still see the blood and the marrow of the bone there. And, uh, and uh, David comes up to me and he says... Um, What's that around around uh, Thunder's neck? And I said, that, "Oh, that's his bad luck chart." <laughs> so they thought that was funny. And that night when they went and wrote that classic song, "I'm Living on a Bad Luck Chart." So that's how that song came to be. Uh, a million miles away was the old Blue Ash song. Steve always wanted to do it, and Blue Ash had never recorded it, so we recorded that. Evil Boy, uh, Jimmy Zero, and I had written as a, as a kind of a, a piss take on Steve, you know about him and, and we played it for him and we were kind of just making fun of him in a way because 
it's a song about you, you know, and he, he loved it. Yeah, he's, I thought, he, he saw, saw the theater in it, so he wanted to record that right away. That's one of the best songs on there. George had Swing in the Go-Go, and I to, told you how Bad Luck Charm came. David had Make Up Your Mind. Uh, then Steve and I wrote Ready Anytime, and the last year, which we, we did on a single, we redid it in a different key. And I Want to Forget You Just the Way You Are, where we did all the explosions. And we did, uh, we were on the way to the studio one night, and we had an oldies channel on it playing uh, I Want to Forget uh, I had too much to dream last night by the electric prunes. And she, you know what, Baders? I said, that guy, sound, you sound just like him. Yeah, we ought to do that. You know, it'd be great. He goes, yeah, let's do it. So we worked it out and did it in the studio. And that became our third single on Bomb. That's great. I was just hearing it on the radio. I said, it sounds just like you. And we're on the way to the studio. So that's kind of, everything was loose. We, and Greg was a great guy, Greg Shaw at Bomb. He just let us do whatever we wanted to do and just kept paying the bills. And, and we would experiment with everything. And that, that's why that album has a different kind of feel. And how long? How long was the uh, from the production? How long was the sessions that you guys recorded? I think middle of August till maybe the middle of September. So it was a month in the studio every day. And you were living out in, in LA. LA, yeah, at the a Tropicana. Yeah. So uh, give us a little taste of what that was like. Well, all, the bands used to all stay at the Tropicana. Everybody say the Ramones, all the punk bands. The Elvis Costello would be there. Different, different people. Iggy was always living there. Tom Waits was our neighbor. And we had a little cottage as part of the hotel. And he, one day he comes, uh, knocks on the door, having a party Saturday night. You guys are invited. Oh, great. <laughs> Stim didn't go, but I went to the party. It was a great party. <laughs> it was crazy having neighbors like that. And our other neighbor was um, um, uh, Ricky Lee Jones and Chucky. Chucky, he's in love. It was the thing. And and Chucky, he was he was the neighbor there. So we had, we had a lot of crazy people staying. Were you going place. out in L.A. and also see? And, and you, you guys are playing too, aren't you? Yeah, we or, played or, Starwood and stuff while we were there, and played whiskey again. And then, um, but we uh, the Tropicana was. You know, it was walking distance from all the clubs. You could just, you know, walk up the Sunset Strip a couple blocks, and there's the whiskey and Gazzari's uh, Rainbow Grill and all that stuff was all there, yeah. Did you know that there was, I mean, could you also tell, like, this is a pretty hip scene? Like, oh, things are happening oh, there. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, you knew that. And like I said, it was, the, you know, that that 1980s summer of Power Pop. I mean, the Ramones were our good friends out there. They were doing the... the uh, um, Rock and Roll High School movie and recording with Phil Spector and Paley Brothers, Jonathan Paley. Stiv, Jonathan Paley, Didi Ramon, and I, we, we hung out a lot together. And we would always end up at like Ben Frank's just drinking coffee and talking all night after we'd been drinking all in the clubs and stuff. So we, that was kind of a cool scene to do. So the album comes out, 
And uh, do you guys take it on the road to support it, or what's what, what's In the, the story? meantime while we're recording? It still went into Baltimore uh, when it was done, and did the polyester movie. Then he decided he was going to wanted to play with the Wanderers. Offered him a gig, but he wanted to do both gigs. So I said, "Well, we got at least tour with Disconnected." So he brought Brian James with him over, and Brian James was in the Damned, and then later Lords of the New Church. But not playing with Stiv yet. He just brought him over as a second guitar player. So we only had one guitar because Jimmy had left. So but that was cool doing the tour with Brian. I liked Brian an awful lot, and we played that was when, And I think Disconnected was released the day John Lennon was shot that Monday. So, I mean, talk about foreboding, you know, with the thing. But we went out and toured with it, and uh, people seemed to like it and everything. That he was wanted to do the wonders, and that we didn't want to do that, so we kind of um, went our separate ways. Were you, did he offer, like, to say, hey, do you want to do this, or were you not? No, he okay. wanted to have the wonders and us. He wanted to have two bands. And when they, they were doing something, we would be doing nothing. When we were doing something, they would be doing nothing. I don't think either band liked the arrangement, so, but... With us, we were just t- we didn't we felt kind of a little bit betrayed and didn't want to, you know, uh, go with that, you know. So we, yeah, it kind of broke up the band. Then I, you know, I played with George and uh, a few other people, just Eddie and stuff, and did stuff around. Jim Kenzer pick, got pickup gigs and did that. And then on January first, nineteen eighty two, Jimmy Zero from the Dead Boys had a new band called Club Wow, and he. he asked me to be the bass player and I was in with them for the next four years. So you uh, after pretty much the disconnected band, are you, you? But you, but you, you're, you're out of California, right? And you're back. No, I'm back in, I'm back in Ohio now. So, but I, I, I always remained friends with Steve. It yeah. wasn't a, a bad breakup because even when the Wanderers came, we opened up for him. Sure. Seven doors. It was, it was never that. It's just that I didn't want to do that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, did you have a? Did you have a regular? Did you have some kind of job to supplement? Yeah, and then, then I, yeah, started. Then I started working at National Record Mart. Did you have to get a job? Yeah, I had to get a job. Just and I was married already, and, and we had a job. My wife had a good job, but I got a job, and did that to help supplement the income. Eventually, became the manager there, and that's how I met the Infidels. And they came in and bought the, two of John and Pete, plopped ten dollars down a disconnected album. I said. You know, what kind of sickos are you guys to buy freaking crap like this? <laughs> oh, Steve's great, man. There's, you know, a 17-year-old box. I started live. I said, turn the record over. And I said, that's me. There's, okay, nice to meet you. Hey, we got a band. We got a punk band. Come down to hear us and tell us what you think. So um, I went down to hear them, and, and they weren't very good, but they had a great attitude. And a great personalities, and they had great originals. Yeah, a song called "Summertime Sucks," which was hilarious. And and so I called my friend Jeff. I said I just ran into this band. I said he goes, "Well, what are they like?" I said, "Well, they're not very good yet." I said, "But picture, you know, seventeen-year-old smart asses, Steve Bader's, Jim Kenzer, and Frank says you could picture great personalities, and they got great originals." And I said, "We should do something with them. Uh, try to help them out." 
and manage them, maybe record them and stuff. He goes, you think we should do it then? I said, yeah. I said, I think they're going to be famous. Anyway, the Infidels did very, very well. And I, I'm in the band with three of them now <laughs> as the Deadbeat Poets. Nice. As my band now, you know, 35 years later. That's so great. From them walking in the in the, in the, in the record store. <laughs> so when, when the band, the uh, just for a point of reference, uh, when the disconnected, when, when that stopped, how, mm -hmm. how old were you? I was, um, I just turned, I was going to be 30, 29 years old, yeah. So you've been doing this for quite a bit of time yeah, at, at, at this point. Yeah, at, at, at 29, I was already a grizzled old veteran. Yeah, and are you um, not frustrated, but are, I mean, because you're, you're in these great things, and yeah. I mean, are inside, are you wanting a certain uh, level of success, or are you happy doing what you're doing? Or? I, 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 I wanted to be on a hit record. I wanted people to record my songs, and then people did start recording my songs. So the 80s were pretty good for me. Uh, a lot of people started covering things. And uh, um, Club Wow was a great band. And that's just, with you and Jimmy Zero. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We did showcases, and we just couldn't get signed. And, and when I, I listen to the stuff now, I wonder why, because it was good stuff. It was a great band, great singers, great players. Billy Sullivan, who was lead guitar player, plays with Herman's Hermits now, with Pedro Nunes. He's done that last 10 years. Jeff West played with Walter Lure, uh, Waldos, all his band. Ran a studio in New York. He's back in... in uh, uh, Cleveland. So we maybe get together and do some stuff with Club Wow. And it just got released on an Australian label, finally. DVD and uh, CD of the Club Wow stuff. And it sounds like crazy. People love the stuff. So so Infidels, that's the, uh, that brings us to the record, Mark. And then uh, it seems, uh, you know, I guess the 80s, and you have a, a son. I have a son, and then uh, I have a son. Jake was born in 1986. And when, when Steve Baders was killed in, in 1990, hit by a car, uh, four days later, my old friend, I told you, I started bands with Beaver Warner. He, he shot himself. He'd had problems with different things and shot himself. So it was a rough, rough week, like I said, for, for those two guys. And it was a rough week for me losing both of them. I just um, kind of uh, quit. The music business. I just walked away. I figured I had my son. I had been doing it for, you know, I was going to turn 40 years old. I had been doing it for 24 years. Yeah. And I thought, uh, you know, I'm just tired of it. I'm not going to play anymore. I'm done. I got a job with an insurance company and got, went and I uh, just uh, did that and all right so never, all right, yeah, hold, on. So hold, on. Yeah. Well, hold on a second so how the fuck does that how does that happen okay. well getting a job from an insurance how do you go from you know being involved in music working at the the record store to getting a job well uh, and when that happened I was still working at the record mart and I was a manager and I was a good manager at I, I won all kind of awards sales things i had one of the best stores in the whole chain it was a national chain and uh, these guys came in from an insurance company and they said you know you're a you're a great salesman you would make a lot of money at our company and i said oh i don't know yeah and came back again and i said all right let me, i'll go for an interview and i went for an interview and i was already thinking about leaving the music business and I worked for a company called Combined Insurance. It's part of the Aon Corporation. It's like Aflac. They sell um, uh, disabilities for mom and pop shops and everything. I said, I could probably do that. And so uh, 
I just quit. I said, that uh, I, I really not interested in the music. I don't want to deal with it anymore. And I quit playing. I didn't even pick up a guitar or anything. For 13 years, I did get really good at the insurance job. I got I was, became a district manager and made a lot of money doing it. But was it, it such, it's such a, I mean, I, I can't fathom it, but I mean, it just seems like that's a, a huge different life. Yeah, it was completely different. And uh, uh, once when I started, I, I was telling a story last night. I, we would meet in restaurants and stuff in the morning, do our, our plan. I was a new, new salesman, and we're in a college town. We're sitting in McDonald's having coffee and just going over what we're going to do for the day for the, you know, working in that area. Two kids come up to me, and they said, are, are you Frank Sausage? And I said, yeah, can we get your autograph? And I never told the guys at the insurance company I was a musician. Signed the autograph. And my boss goes, what the hell was that all about? And I said, I used to play defense for the Pittsburgh Penguins 20 <laughs> years ago. I got injured and didn't play much. And then finally, a few days later, I told him about it. I was music. But they were asking why some your college kids want my autograph, you know, so. I, I, I took the piss out of him for a couple of days and went on about that. But yeah, yeah. I, you didn't miss it at all? or I, Actually, I didn't. Yeah. I, I had fun with my son. Uh, I coached hockey and coached Little League, and uh, I, I never missed a game. I took him with me every week. We'd go on fun days, at least one day a week when he's uh, just take off and go to Lake Erie or go up in the mountains and stuff. And I, I never really missed it, but I never touched a guitar for 13 years. Six Gibson guitar, and I had it in a case with 13 year old strings on it. And I, in 2003, my son was ready to graduate from high school and everything, so I'd seen him through all his stuff, and it was good, you know. He played sports, and he turned out to be a great kid and a great man. And uh, I picked up the guitar, and I wrote this riff, but I'm bum 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 bum. I thought, oh, hell, now i got to write this song, and I had to bring the song. So I wrote a song called The Stiv Bader's Ghost Tour. I was thinking about him and made it a kind of a rollicking romp through his life. And then the songs just started pouring out of me. Every other day I'm writing, right, bang, 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 bang. They're coming out because I haven't done it in so long. I mean, I couldn't stop it. I couldn't turn the faucet off. It was just all these things from my growing up child, Jenny Berg Hill, blah, 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 the green man. Every other day I'm writing this stuff. And so I, I started, went to Pete Revere, who was in the Infos, had a thriving studio now, Amprion Recorder in... Um, uh, Youngstown, another friend of mine, Tom Sailors, had a studio in his house, and they both said, you, you want to come over, just record them on an acoustic guitar, 12-string, and you make all kind of demos. I started making all these demos and stuff. So um, I didn't know what to do with it, and uh, finally sent out some demos to um, 
Patrick LaSalle at Bomb Records who had taken over after Greg had died and, hit, and Greg's wife was still there, Susie. He goes, this, because I didn't know anybody in the music because I'd been out of it for 13, 14 years. I knew no one, you know? And um, he says, Frank, this stuff is really good. He goes, but it's not, not the stuff I do. He goes, but I know this company in Japan will go crazy over this stuff. So he gives me the address and, and I sent them four uh, demos on email and 12 hours later they offered me a recording contract so we had we were already getting the deadbeat poets together so i I'll call terry hartman an old friend of mine and me pete and um john from the infidels started the deadbeat poets and we're working on our ninth album right now it's going to come out this year i dreamed of fields of butterflies Shine from everybody's eyes. The golden sun was shining through. Yes, it was. The ugly people smiled too. So you've got like a whole another from your 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 brief time off to like you know you've been kind of going pretty you know strong yeah. and uh, creative ever yeah. since, and it's not stopped yet, which uh, is great. Yeah, um, and we got blue new blue ash recordings going. Then I wrote the book and then I tore around. Yeah, so t- let's talk about the book for a second. So the book is called Circumstantial Evidence, and it's pretty much your. You it's know, a your- life story about me growing up in Sharon in in the Steel Town, and all the bands I was in, and all the scenes I was in, and people I met in the music industry. It's a pretty funny book. It's a it's yeah. a great read, and that's how I saw you because I saw that you were coming to the Star Bar. I don't know. Yeah, you came like three to Atlanta. Yeah. yeah, and I drove to see you, and yes. that was great, man. Yeah, and you, I'm glad and you came. Me too, yeah. man, because I probably yeah. wouldn't be sitting here yeah. with you if I didn't yeah. show up yeah. there. So I'm glad. And uh, but just watching you uh, tell the stories and, and play the tunes is great and you know you have a very uh, great you know joyous way about you oh, and you but you you really relish in just uh playing from mm-hmm. from what i see you just love to play yeah as i like to play and so it's just really nice t- to see that and um yeah, so I, have fun. I still have fun i can it. see that you know and so not only the deadbeat poets the blue ash and then uh you guys had uh, a single or a couple songs that were yeah. on the on the radio. On yeah, the- well, Little Steven, Underground Garage. We've had three songs from the Debbie Poets as a hit. Cold songs of the world. They pick one every week on his syndicated show, which is on like three hundred channels around the world. And Armed Forces Radio, Voice of America, it has millions of listeners. So it's a great, great show. And then he has the regular show on Sirius XM Channel 21. But the first one was um, um, The Staircase Stomp. I wrote a song about Joe Meek, the British producer. And um, uh, they picked it up in 2010 and went with it. They were actually, you know, doing uh, a program about crazy producers, so it fit really it, it right in with them. And it's it's a it's it's a great song, great recording, and they still play it all the time to this day. And then Man with the X-ray Eyes, and then in 2013 or 14 it was Johnny Sincere. And then at the end of the year, they vote for the coolest song in the world for the year. And Johnny Sincere came in number two. The other two came in five out of 52 things. That's great. So we got a great fan base because of that. And you guys tour, right? And we tour. Yeah. Yeah. We've been to Europe four times now. And um, 
uh, yeah, we tour around and play different places, yeah. And and then I got my old band Blue Ash back together, and we're we're recording too with the guys in the Deadbeat Poets. So when we tour, like we toured Spain, we do the first song set as the Deadbeat Poets, and we bring Jim Kenzer out, my old friend, lead singer, and we do Blue Ash thing because we were the two main vocals in it anyway, and we do all Blue Ash songs, old Blue Ash songs. That's so great. It's a kind of cool package. You get two bands for the price of one. Nice. And so also you have been out as of recently, uh, been out uh, helping promote uh, the film, oh, yeah, which, the, which which we screened here last night. Yeah, the Stib Bader's movie by Danny Garcia. It's called Stib, No Compromise, No Regrets. And the premiere was in Cleveland a month ago at um, the Cinematheque at Cleveland Art Institute. Beautiful big theater, 300 people sold out. They turned hundreds away and front page of the the Cleveland Plain Dealer uh, entertainment section. P- they really did them right in Cleveland. It was really beautiful. And Jimmy Zero was there, a big panel afterwards. It was all filmed. Then we went to New York the next next uh, next weekend. Two sold-out shows there at Theater 80 in St. Mark's Place. Little Steven came the second one, sat right by him right there at, at that showing, and came and bought my book and, and Dave Treat's book about the Dead Boys. He bought all the merch there, which was really cool and great to support all this stuff. They went to Philadelphia the next night, then Pittsburgh, and now I did Chattanooga last night, so that was that was pretty cool. And great show here in Chattanooga. Great people, too. Well, good. I- I'm glad. Uh, let's... Uh, we're going to wrap it up here, I think, in, in a second, because we've done a mm. lot. I think uh, your your wife uh, seems like a really uh, nice lady. Yeah, she uh, is. Uh, and it seems like she... And you guys have been married a long time. We've been married for... What's uh, her name? Lisa. Lisa's my wife. And we met in 1974, and um, we got married in 1977. So it will be married uh, this year, 40, 42 years. And she's been behind you uh, yeah, on e- everything. supported everything yeah. here. And, and that's really cool. And I'm going to England in... in, uh, in less than two weeks now and I'm taking my wife and my son with me that's great on man. tour with me so. and so my favorite tune that you do you know as uh, you got great ones but I'm a circumstantial evidence kind of yes. guy and so you have a line like that's how I knew who your wife was yeah, yeah, from yeah. That. so that's really cool so yeah. what you tell the story uh, of that of oh that. we were doing circumstantial evidence it was the, the the flip side of stiff second single we were doing it at Leon Russell's studio in the, the San Fernando Valley and uh, we, we were ready to uh, to record it, and I didn't like how the the uh, last verse sounded, so I rewrote one real quick on a big piece of paper. So I said, "Steve, let's uh, try this." Uh, you know, my girlfriend and I left it blank, put in a girl's name. Heard about me, my all alone with her best friend blank over the telephone. So uh, he looks over and. Uh, in the corner, and my wife's talking with Joan Jett, who was at our session just hanging out. He goes, Lisa and Joan. I said, that's great, and it rhymes, too. I never even thought, so that's how we kind of work together as a team, and that's stayed in there ever since, and that's why that third verse is like that. I mean, my girlfriend so Joan heard about me all alone, the best friend Lisa over the telephone, so it, it worked good. That's and nice. rhymed. <laughs> that's, that's always important. Steve was clever like that. He did that, That was so it was cool.
a beautiful song i think you're a beautifully nice man and oh I, thank you and i want to thank you very much for uh coming out on the road with well, us. thanks for bringing me down south again I, I always love the people down here i've i've never not had a great time in the south so. cool man and, well, and the food is is always uh, first rate and good. the liquor too good well we'll try to have a little bit of that uh to more today uh thank you so much for taking the time and indulging me mm-hmm. and let me ask you more questions and uh, i've i've had nothing but a blast being with you. you're a really solid guy if uh do you want to say some sort of web thing or any information if somebody wants to find you promote yeah, the book if, promote if you, the film if, whatever you want to do you can find the film it's stiv no compromises no regrets you could google that frank sesich on facebook and instagram s-e-c-i-c-h is the last name i'm very easily found <laughs> you are and the book is great. Get the book. And uh, besides making my uh, son, uh, this is the coolest thing that I've done. So I, once again, I really uh, thank you for indulging me, and, and I'd like to go out on the road with you again at some uh, point. Oh, we'll, do, we'll do that definitely. And thank you, Justin. I've had a blast this week. The guys in the band are great. You guys have a great band. And it's always a pleasure getting up with guys who can really play. Cool. Well, thanks. That means a lot for me. It's, a, it's an honor, man. Thank you, Frank, very much. Thank you. some hot rock and roll action to the max. I want to thank the Honorable Mr. Frank Sessage for taking the time to uh, sit down and talk with me and indulge my rock and roll questions. I want to thank the downtown Chattanooga Public Library for making this happen. And I especially want to thank the oil baron behind the master fader, Mr. Charles Allison. This is Justin Savage saying, don't let the flesh fall off the bones.